The psalmist declares in Psalm 130, out of the depths, Lord, hear my voice. In the Latin, it's called the De Profundis, out of the depths. In the Psalter, it's one of the Psalms of Ascent, those short psalms sung by the pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem for the High Holy Days. Eugene Peterson calls the Psalter the dog-eared hymn book of the people of God. I've always loved that. When I was a young pastor back in Alpharetta, Georgia, my soul got weary, and because of it, I ended up spending time with a spiritual director named Ben Johnson out at a monastery in Conyers, Georgia. Two of us pastors who were beat up a little bit would go out and we would get there right before the gates closed to the monastery and first thing we would do is sit together and read a psalm across one another and depending on the psalm that the other chose we had a sense of how it had been with each other in the intervening month between we were there. Tom Lewis, a classmate, was the other pastor and for six months the psalm he chose was Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. His was a journey of depression and challenge. He ultimately did his doctoral dissertation and came up with a beautiful book about how the psalms can be companions in the midst of darkness. But I have a bone to pick with the translators of the new Revised Standard Version. At the end of April, we'll be having a man who used to be the head of the Society of Biblical Literature to teach Sunday school about the NRSVUE. It's a new translation of the NRSV that is coming out with over 10,000 changes. I'm not a stick in the mud about translation, but any any scripture I had memorized was out of the old RSV. And I had, I had pretty well memorized Psalm 130. And one line that really stood out for me was verse 7, which in the RSV was translated with the beautiful poetic vision, and God will provide plenteous redemption. The NRSV switched that to a prosaic, God provides great power to redeem. Do you hear that shift? I want plenteous redemption. And at the end of the day, I think that's also what Ezekiel wants. Let's listen as we read together 37, 1-14. through 14. Hear the Word of God. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and God brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. God led me all around them. They were very many living in the valley, and they were very dry. God said to me, mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then God said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and 
will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied and had been commanded and as I prophesied suddenly there was a noise, a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. I looked and there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them and there was no breath in them. Then God said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus said the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and they stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then God said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. If you're like most of us, you would say that your life is not exactly where you thought it would be. Perhaps it was the fact that I celebrated a late date birthday on Friday that has me reflecting on such things. Now that realization isn't all bad. And when you look around at those whose burdens in life are much greater than your own, you scold yourself for even complaining. But at the end of a long and difficult day when your heart is unprotected, you take a little inventory of your work, your relationship, your dreams, and it's apparent that the life has not quite worked out as you planned. And last Sunday when we learned the shocking news that two individuals had spray-painted swastikas and hate slogans on five homes just down in Sylvan Park, it was clearer to us again that the world is not in a right place. Then there's the gruesome images of the fighting in Ukraine, the horrific earthquake in Turkey, the flooding in East Africa, renewed conflict in Syria and Afghanistan. The list goes on demonstrating how far we've drifted from what God had in mind in creation. We're so far from paradise. 600 years before the birth of Christ, Nebuchadnezzar had the Babylonian armies destroy Jerusalem. Donovan and our Holy Land pilgrims return tomorrow, and I can't wait to hear from them about their experiences, especially as they complete their tour in Jerusalem today. 
But in the time of Ezekiel, the Babylonian armies destroyed Jerusalem. They leveled the temple. They uh, desecrated what was thought to be the Holy of Holies. After all that destruction, they took the most promising of the Hebrew citizens, all the intelligentsia, anybody with anything, back to Babylon with them. And when they got back to Babylon, they were kept there. They joined people like Daniel and Ezekiel who had been taken 10 years earlier, and together they formed an exilic Hebrew community in Babylon. To be in, in exile inherently means you're not in the right place. It's significant, though, that in Babylon, the Hebrews were not in prison. They weren't put in internment camps. In fact, they were given much the run of the city. They were allowed to work, to own property, to marry. They were allowed to engage in economic pursuits. And over a couple of generations, those who were, in fact, hard workers in Babylon did quite well, became quite wealthy. In exile, in the wrong place, they were allowed to assemble together to elect their own leaders, even to worship. But this last thing, the worship part, was hard for the Hebrews. They could do almost everything else and could make their lives far better and more comfortable, but worshiping when you are not in the right place was very difficult for them. The right place was Jerusalem, which was destroyed. How could they worship in Babylon? In another psalm they sang, By the waters of Babylon we knelt down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It's one of the hardest things of all to do is to worship when you're not in the right place. Over the years of pastoral ministry, that's always surprised me. It shouldn't, but it always has. When someone's life has been interrupted by tragedy or loss, typically the first thing that they do is stop coming to worship. I would think that that would be a time when they would most want to be in worship, but no, they'd often drop out of worship. At first I thought it was because they were somewhat embarrassed by their loss, loss of a job or a loved one who had died, or the loss of health. Eventually, I figured out that their real loss was their understanding of God. They just could not make out how God could let this happen to them. They were devastated, like the Hebrews were devastated by the unthinkable, the destruction of their temple. And so, for them to bring their losses into a worship service where everyone around them is standing up and singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow when so few of those blessings are now flowing into their life. That's impossible. The hurt was more than they can bear. And when we experience these kinds of losses, when we become confused about what God is doing or not doing in our violent world, we're also tempted to forget about the praise of God and about what we know in worship. And like the Hebrew exiles in Babylon, we're tempted to just start thinking about ourselves. We cope however we can cope. Like them, we, we choose to work hard. We collect things. We make life okay day after day, even though we've lost all sense of vision. And we learn how to handle the sadness that has now just settled down into our bones. 
Even when the Hebrews were allowed to return to Babylon to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, the leaders had a hard time motivating people to go back and rebuild. It had been too long. The sadness had settled in. The despair had become comfortable, and they could not dare to hope again. People prefer often the misery they know to the mystery that they do not. Now, that's completely illogical. Logically, you would think mystery beats misery any day, but people are not logical about their hurts. No. They befriend their hurt. After a while, it's all they trust, and they know that if they dare hope again, they will just get more hurt anyway. And so they settle, just as many of us would settle, for the world the way it is. Well, the Lord God will not settle. The Lord God will never settle for us living without a magnificent hope. So on one day, the Lord God takes Ezekiel, the prophet, and God carries him to the valley filled with dry bones, and God says to Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live again? Ezekiel, a smart man, says initially, well, you know, Lord, the answer to this one. Not making it up, it's right there. But God just keeps moving and says, it's time for you to do some prophecy. It's time for you to do some preaching. Here's what you will say. Thus says the Lord, I will breathe my breath on you, the holy Ruach, and you will come back to life and you will know that I am Lord. This is the same breath the Lord God used to breathe life into Adam and making human life because you cannot be human without the breath of God. And you cannot have the breath of the Lord without being fully alive, and you cannot be fully alive without being hopeful. It's time to give up comfortable despair and cynicism. It's time to come back to life again. It's time to come back to worshipful experience in which, once again, the breath of the Lord returns you to life and hope. And so Ezekiel starts preaching to these dry bones. Can you imagine how bizarre that must have looked? The prophet of the Lord out in the valley of old dry bones, preaching up a storm to them. If it were me, I would have first said, Lord, I'll tell you what, you bring them back to life first, then I'll do a little preaching. I'd say, see what you can do. See what the Lord has done. That's a good sermon. But that's beside the point. The Lord is looking for a proclaimer of hope, and hope is a way of believing when you cannot see. Hope is a thing which rises up from the bones and brings us back to life in spite of how it is because hope is absolutely focused on what the Lord can do and will do. The Lord God who is not done. This is why hope is not just a warm feeling or wishful thinking. Hope is revolutionary. It's absolutely subversive in the present tense. Because hope says, don't you dare take the present so seriously, for it will not last. In the coming weeks, the last Sunday in April and the first two in May, we'll be gathering in fellowship hall during Sunday school hour for church-wide Sunday school with our discernment committee to talk and dream about the church's mission. 
given that this year we're celebrating Westminster's 150th year, talking about our mission in the present and near future is a right and proper thing to do. But never forget that mission has an older sister, and her name is Hope. And hope comes first. And hope inspires and corrects her younger sister, Mission, so that when we hear about hate slogans and anti-Jewish symbols sprayed on the walls of homes in our neighborhood, hope won't let us say, well, there's always going to be anti-Semitism and discrimination. Hope won't let us say that. Hope corrects that. Hope inspires us to say, this is just Babylon. We're not going to settle for this. Our true home is in another city, a holy city that moves from Jerusalem to every corner of the earth, including Babylon. And that's where we really belong. The true city of God, a city that is on its way and we're continually working for it. In that city, every person is treated as a holy person, made holy because they are created in the image of the living God. The city of God, that's the place from which we take our inspiration from hope. And we throw our lives into the mission now, trying to find any approximation of that city here in Babylon while we possibly can. Because that's where we belong and hope will keep us there even on the long road toward the kingdom of God. In his wonderful biography, The Long Road to Freedom, Nelson Mandela describes his 27 years in prison on Robben Island. It was not the right place for anyone to be. It's a horrible place, a severe place that is designed to extinguish any possible glimmer of hope. The conditions were terrible and the guards were cruel. Mandela says that he and the other inmates there did almost give up on hope until they started singing songs in their native tongues that the guards did not know. And so while they would be working, they would sing songs of revolution, and the guards loved these songs because they seemed to keep the prisoners so happy. They also sang folk and spiritual songs that reminded them of home, and as a result, hope stayed alive in their hearts. And after he had been in prison for 14 years, He was allowed a first visit with his daughter, and she brought to prison with her her infant new baby daughter. And it falls in their tradition for the grandfather to name all the grandchildren. So as soon as Mandela picked up this little baby girl, he announced that her name was Zaziwe, which means hope. And he writes, as I looked at this little girl, I had a firm and certain hope that she would grow up to live in a day when apartheid would only be known in the history books. A hope that came true. Now when he named that little baby girl Hope, Mandela still had a long way to go. He was only halfway through his prison sentence. But that's what hope does. That's why we live by it. It's what keeps us going on the long road to freedom, on the long road to justice for all of God's creatures, on the long road to peace and safety. Hope is what prevents us from stopping the journey. And let the church be clear that part of what we can offer the world is our hope. Let the world around the church be at least 
believing that we believe. Let them at least see that we will continue to insist on hope for another way of life than what it's like in Babylon. And why do we have hope? Not because it feels good, not because we have that much resolve in us. We have hope for the same reason that Mandela had hope in prison. Because he knew that God was not done with his country. We need to know that God is not done with our society, with our world. God is not done with any of the societies of the world. That's why the Persian friends that I, I met in Turkey were living in the hope even while their country is in absolute depression. This world that God in Jesus Christ was literally dying to love That God is not done. And that's why we have hope, because God has divine, holy, sacred dreams that have yet to unfold for us. We trust in God's dreams, not our own, for they promise plenteous redemption for each and for all. So let us proclaim to each other as we work for God's justice, as we strive for the approximation of God's holy city, Let us encourage each other by saying, God is not done. There is every reason to hope. God is not done, therefore we are not done. Thanks be to God that God gives us this work to do, to be partners in hope, to bring about God's plenteous redemption. Amen.